Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have an awesome show for you. We're going to get meshy with Bluetooth, which just announced their new mesh networking standard. We're also going to talk about Google Glass. Baby, it's back. We've got the Amazon Echoes features in an alarm clock. We've got a security flaw again. We've got a big funding for an IoT development platform the FBI warning people about connected toys, and some low-power wide area network action. And our guest this week is Ken Calderup of the Bluetooth SIG. We're going to get even deeper into what Bluetooth mesh means for you. We also go to a message from our sponsor to discuss why your connected locks don't always work with the Amazon Echo. And now let's take a moment for a message from another one of our sponsors, Affiliated Monitoring. If you're hunting for a subscription revenue model for your IoT business, you need to hear about Affiliated Monitoring. In response to a trigger from any connected device, Affiliated's professionally trained live agents can follow a protocol and reach out to your customers, their loved ones, and local emergency services. Affiliated works with hundreds of smart home, security, health, and other IoT businesses. Visit affiliated.com slash IoT to read a case study on how they helped a connected car startup turn an idea into a thriving business with a $100 million exit. That's affiliated.com slash IoT. Additionally, we here at the podcast are booking ads for Q4. So if you have any questions or want to advertise on the show, email Andrew at IOTpodcast.com. All right, Kevin, let's talk Mm. about Bluetooth. Yeah, we've been waiting for this for a while. Like Um, two years. Yeah, yeah. I know our guest from the Bluetooth SIG is going to really get into all of the news here, but just to give people the high level, Bluetooth will now support mesh networking. So Bluetooth devices, instead of being peer-to-peer or one device to one, uh, it's pretty much introduces many to many, which is crazy uh, good for, oh, geez, I mean, pretty Sensors, much everything. Smart homes. Lighting, um, industrial. Yeah, this industrial. Gets, yeah, this gets Bluetooth into the industrial world that it's been like kind of excited about for a while. So mm-hmm. the one thing we don't address in the interview is mm-hmm. – what does this mean for all of the other standards? So stay tuned for all of the stuff about it's got things called mesh models. We talk about how it does intelligent routing. We talk about use cases. And we'll even talk about things like IPv6 and bandwidth constraints. So there is a lot in the interview. But what we don't now, talk about. Well, I, I haven't heard the interview yet. I'll hear it after the show. But so if you guys have talked about this, that's we can skip this. But I'm curious about the power requirements. I'm curious about if this will require new Bluetooth hardware and devices, which I don't think it will. I think it will actually work with Bluetooth 4 and 5 devices that are already in existence. So am I correct on that? Kevin, you're spoiling the interview. Yes, you are correct. So um, it's only going to work over Bluetooth low energy. Mm -hmm. It is not going to work over classic Bluetooth. What else did you want to know? Power. I'm curious about any power so we get into how it conserves power. That's actually okay. a huge portion of the interview because there's a lot that's Sweet. happening there. And then when it comes to how it's going to be implemented, that really depends on your silicon. So it goes all the way back to Bluetooth LE 4.0. 
So it's backwards compatible to that, provided your silicon provider can update their chip with the software needed to run the mesh. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, those are two key questions I was curious about before we actually answer the question you originally asked, which is, what does this mean for other technologies? Because when I saw this news hit, it was the first thing I thought of. And I may be wrong, I'll let you tell me, but I immediately thought of Z-Wave because Z-Wave has always had mesh networking as far as I can remember. And... What So what happens to Z-Wave? <laughs> so there's three mesh networking technologies that matter in kind of the smart home, in less so the industrial space, but mm-hmm. definitely in the smart home. And that's Zigbee, Z-Wave, and the up-and-coming Thread. Right. So for Z-Wave, I feel like Z-Wave is a little bit on the outs in talking to people, mm-hmm. you know, seeing things like Eero supporting Thread in their routers – um, Comcast is actually supporting Thread in some of its Xfinity home gateways. So I look at that, and Z-Wave is not part of that. So I'm like, right, uh-oh. Right. Yeah, and and for the longest time, I was, I don't want to say anti-Z-Wave. I'm not against any technology that solves a problem effectively. But I've never felt confident that Z-Wave would come out as a a leader in this space, just because, mainly because, I should say, it's not as prevalent in devices. And by devices, I mean the phones and tablets and things that people use to control other things. But all those devices have Wi-Fi, all of them have Bluetooth, and the Bluetooth was lacking mesh, so Z-Wave, I started warming up to it. But now that Bluetooth has mesh, it's almost like that whole advantage is negated to me. Right. And I think, honestly, a bigger question would be, what does this do to Zigbee? Because Zigbee is really popular in lighting, It is the radio protocol behind like your hue lights and a lot of other kind of even industrial lighting things. Mm -hmm. And it is a mesh network as well. It's a low power mesh network. And Bluetooth is coming for Zigbee. Mm -hmm. That's where we stand right here. And the advantage Bluetooth is going to have here is that it's in all these phones and other devices today. If they can be updated, and many of them can be, Mm -hmm. then you're going to see if you're in an industrial setting, probably actually won't control a lot of stuff from your phones, to be totally True. honest. True. But there might be an advantage to having someone contribute using their phone. Right. I can see cases where, like, if it's a HVAC system, someone could mm-hmm. be like, hey, I'm hot. Make it cooler. There's still – I'm not writing any of these other technologies off by any means because I think there's still some advantages. I know that Zigbee is really low power. I, I don't – know about, um, I'm sorry, Z-Wave, I was thinking, because I looked it up earlier this morning. Um, So there may be power advantages to have a Z-Wave chip inside. It has lower throughput, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, lower throughput than Bluetooth, that is. That's not necessarily a bad thing, because not every application needs, you know, lots of megabits per second throughput. Um, and there may be some cost advantages in terms of the of the chips themselves. I, I, again, I, I haven't seen any comparisons on those, but so I'm not writing it off yet. I just that's kind of where my head's at right now. I think it will remain to be seen, honestly, if mm-hmm. Bluetooth is going to conquer all, just because this is still very new. There's still a lot of unanswered questions, even in the current spec about how it handles some of the routing requirements and scalability requirements. Mm -hmm. So I think in about five months, maybe six months, we'll kind of start seeing how this is going to affect the industry. I actually think the more interesting question is how does 
Bluetooth and Thread kind of emerge. Because one of the things Bluetooth doesn't do and Thread does do is you can talk directly to the internet. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And Bluetooth could do that, but it doesn't. And in the mesh situations, it won't. So I'm kind of thinking about this and I'm like, ooh. So bottom line is, I think this is an excellent technology. A lot of devices are already going to come out and support it today. Mm-hmm. And it will be awesome because like right now my Bluetooth switches, for example, if I'm not on the same floor as the light, I can't control it. Mm-hmm. And that's stupid. Right. That's right. just dumb. So we shall see. Let us move on to other exciting news. Google Glass. Google Glass, which is also Bluetooth capable, just saying. Google Glass, everybody kind of thought it was dead for good reason. It was very consumer focused. Google did the whole Explorer thing to early adopters wanted to pay $1,500 for this camera and small processor and battery and sensors. You you had some, hmm? right? Yeah, I didn't want to admit it, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wait a second. I I still do. Okay. (laughs) I still do. In a a dresser drawer somewhere, I have the original Google Glass edition, uh, Explorer edition. Yeah, back when we worked for GigaOM, uh, GigaOM actually uh, purchased those for me to cover because we thought, hey, this could be a very interesting space. And it is an interesting space. It just totally. didn't develop the way Google thought it would back in, I don't know, 2013 or so. But quietly, Google has continued to work on Google Glass for a different type of customer, mainly that is enterprise and industrial customers. And they've just announced that hey, we've been doing this and it's actually working pretty well. So companies such as GE, Boeing, DHL have all been using it. Doctors have been using it. DHL, for example, says that they've they've increased their supply chain efficiency by 15%, whereas in healthcare, it's reduced paperwork uh, loads by 20% and allows doctors to spend more time with patients. So, So there is a glass enterprise edition that is targeted towards, I think, the right audience for that product. If you're a consumer, nothing's really changed here. But, you know, if you're you have a workforce that you want to enable with some type of AR or additional, you know, information at the at the glance of an eye. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Well, so this, I think, remember how computers, personal computers, started out in the workplace and migrated mm-hmm. out. I mm-hmm. think this idea of heads-up displays are so both high cost originally, yes. and it's a very big difference. It's a huge social and kind mm-hmm. of user interface shift. So I think starting at the enterprise makes sense for a lot of reasons. And this is, don't think of this just as glasses, right? Think just heads up display and not having to look at a screen is really compelling. And this is technology that is being deployed, as you said, in all of these places, but it's also technology that like Microsoft is using with manufacturers using its HoloLens for, and that's more Mm -hmm. AR focused. Mm -hmm. But one of the big questions I have about things like AR is, do I really want to look at the world through my phone? The answer is probably no. I was shocked, actually, when Google launched these for consumers, because I was like, oh, this is this is going to violate all kinds of social contracts, and it just Which doesn't it make did. sense. <laughs> Which it did. And that's kind of why mine are sitting in a, a dresser drawer somewhere. But, but, but I think the way I looked at the product when it first launched for consumers was very much like I look at Android Wear and other smartwatches, that is contextual information at a glance. 
if you look at it that way, it sort of makes sense. Unfortunately, it did much more than that, such as recording people and you know video and so on. And there was no light indicator that people knew you were recording them. This Enterprise Edition actually does have a little light so that people are aware. So I got it. It just was the wrong form for that concept. Yes. And this has better networking. It's faster, better processor, longer battery life. It's got a camera that's eight megapixels, not five. Mm-hmm. So... I think in enterprises are also going to be able to pay this price. And then when we get economies of scale, maybe we'll start Mm -hmm. seeing things come down. I mean, we've got the Mm -hmm. Snapchat glasses, although. No, we don't. I don't. I don't, but you know, (laughs) they exist. Also real quick, just because you were mentioning some specs, I noticed that there's an Intel Atom inside, which (gasps) surprised me. What? Yes. Yes. Because the original glass was kind of built upon smartphone guts, Mm -hmm. which made sense. Low power. But it was capable of doing what needed to be done. But this actually has an Intel Atom inside. Well, and that might be because of software. A lot of enterprise software mm-hmm. isn't ARM compatible yet. I don't know. That's interesting. And, you know, these guys, presumably you can charge your glasses every night. If you're in a workspace, you're going to be. Yeah, I don't think they take them home. Employees right. use them at their desk and or on the production line or wherever they are, doctors in the in the office. They're not wearing these things home. So you've got, you know, as long as you can get. I don't even know, a full eight hours or maybe you, I mean, if you're on a production line, you probably have a prescribed lunch and you can probably charge them then too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway. Okay. So that was exciting. I am stoked about the return of glass in what feels like a a more the gradual, right gradual rollout. Yeah. Um, tell me about this alarm clock you found because it looks pretty cool. Yeah. So it's a Kickstarter. I'll say that right up front. Um, it has already uh, exceeded its goal. So it is going to continue. It's the Sandman Doppler. And I had not heard of this Sandman company before, but apparently they came up with a a Kickstarter, a successful Kickstarter previously for an alarm clock, like a smart alarm clock. But that did not have the voice services that Amazon Echo provides. I don't want to say Miss A's name. That's why I said it that way. Uh, So this is kind of interesting to me. It's it's literally an alarm clock that when you look at the screen or the display, it looks like an old time LED or I'm sorry, LCD alarm clock, but it has a pair of speakers, I think 14 watts. So they probably are pretty loud and it's got the voice services built in. It has quick buttons that you can program to do tasks instead of using your voice to say, I thought that was awesome. Oh, I think it's great. Miss A, turn the lights out in the house. You can just program that to a button. There's several of those buttons. The screen display does show you your weather, which is kind of nice, the day of the week. And it also has a little light bar, which is customizable to um, indicate certain things. So if you want to know if the stock market is up or down, you can program that light bar to show green or red. Obviously, it's got a, a microphone built in so you can speak to it. And what I thought was really smart of these guys, they put in six USB ports in the back of it so you can charge your mobile devices off of this thing. And even more interestingly, you can pull three of those out at a time and replace them to a different form factor. So you have the old USB-A ports, you can put those in. If you have USB-C, you can put those in. Really, really clever design. Um, And again, it's been funded. Looks like it will not be available to backers for about a year, unfortunately, which is kind of a bummer. But if you want one on the cheap, you can beta test it. You're not going to get final hardware, but you can beta test uh, hardware in design for $89. You can still get uh, a Sandman Doppler for $119 in advance. Don't know if they said the uh, 
the MSRP at this point. They haven't. Now, I will yeah. say that feels, I've got a dot by my bed mm-hmm. and it's great. So for 50 bucks, I can tell it to do all these things. So I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, you know, mm. having a clock display is nice because mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, I'm not going to ask Madam A to tell me the time, but mm-hmm. it feels like a lot of money just to get additional ports and that clock face. But it's certainly going to sound better too. Okay. Well, that's true. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this has a pair of 14-watt speakers, whereas if I had to guess, the dot, you're probably looking at more like a, almost like a smartphone speaker, maybe two watts at best. Oh, and the quick access actually can do several things. It's not just mm-hmm. one thing. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. So basically, I don't want to have to buy another device, Kevin. You're really- oh, I get it. I get it. Believe me, I'm, I'm all, uh, no pun intended, I'm all tapped out myself uh, between the Amazon tap, a couple of dots at Echo, Google Home. So this would have to be different, but it appealed. It was different enough to appeal to me at that price. Um, I haven't backed it yet, but I think I just might. Okay. Well, we'll see. You know, the other thing is this looks pretty bright. So hopefully they've got a dimming it's, option. It, 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 <laughs> it, like, a, like most smartphones, it has um, a sensor in there that can read the ambient light and it dims automatically based on that. So. Ooh, magic. Oh, and it's powered by the next thing's chip. I love the chip. This well, is this go. is the nine dot. Well, this isn't the nine dollars. Chip is the com- the next thing makes a nine dollar development board, and the Chip Pro is a little bit more. But I freaking love that company. All right, very exciting. Maybe I'll back it just to support the chip guys. There okay. you go. Let's talk about now that we're done with our gadget fetish. Let's go <laughs> into oh security vulnerabilities. This one's <laughs> called <laughs> Devil's Ivy. Oh my gosh. And this is something, it is a vulnerability that affects IP-based security cameras mostly, but IP-based. Don't they all? Don't they, they all, all do. affect those? <laughs> it's that's because security cameras have been connected to the internet. For a long time. Forever, before we even thought about all this stuff. Yep. We were dumb. So this one is particularly nasty because it is a vulnerability in open source software that is used by a lot of these security cameras. Mm -hmm. So the prevalence of the vulnerability is the problem. However, it doesn't appear too easy to exploit. Right, Kevin? Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, it's, once the device is compromised, you'd actually have to have the user like uh, upload or or get a like a two gig file, and it's not likely it's going to be exploited. It's more of a buffer crash type thing, uh, an overrun, but it's still not good. So it's not as nasty as a lot of the other things that we like the Mirai bot, for example, we talked about months and months ago. It's nothing like that, but it's still concerning. And um, I believe it was Axis Communications. Uh, they say that about 249 of their camera models were affected. They've already patched them, and they have shared information with the uh, industry at large on how to fix things. But it's going to be up to each individual hardware maker to update firmware because that's the only way to fix it. Uh, speaking yeah. of security, the FBI is warning people about connected toys. This is like a recurring theme with them. I feel like it's once a year. It's like, oh, time to alert people about those smart toys. Or just smart things. The FBI has done a a warning about connected devices in general. But this specific device is about privacy and your children, which... That's important. It is important. But it basically goes in and is like, hey, consumer, lays out why IoT toys are vulnerable, why you should care. And then it's got a section called, what should I do? And I'm really hacked. I'm cheesed about this because the, what Hmm. should I do section is incredibly long and is is just 
mind-boggling that you would think a consumer would do this. So some of those things are research if your toys can receive firmware or software updates and security patches. If they can, ensure these are running. That's great, right? Mm -hmm. But then it's research where user data is stored with the company, third-party services, or both. I, as a reporter, have asked Mattel Mm -hmm. for data on this type of thing, Mm -hmm. including they also talk about Do they use authentication when pairing the device via Bluetooth? And do they use encryption when transmitting data from the toy to the Wi-Fi access point in the server to the cloud? I, as a reporter, have sent this data to or sent these questions to Mattel. And -hmm. Mattel was like, "Uh, why do you want to know this? Mm -hmm. So feeling like a consumer can just call up Mattel and be like, hey, I want to buy this like connected Barbie doll for 20 bucks. Yeah, not going to happen. So yeah, this this to me points out that we've got a big gaping hole and consumers can't. So I, I totally agree with you as I look at some of the other questions, you know, read the disclosures and privacy policies to see if the company is victimized by a cyber attack. What will the company do if they were, you know, will they notify you? If vulnerabilities are discovered, will the company notify you? Where's your data being stored? Who has access to it? All great questions. But just as you said, people are not going to call and ask about that. And the few that do probably aren't going to get the answers. So here's a thought, just a thought. And I don't like to get into... Um, regulations and policy and whatnot. But in this case, I'm going to throw it out there. Should there be answers to those questions, at least at a high level, on the packaging for all of these devices? Yes, this gets into this idea of having a some sort of labeling for data. Yes. And I totally agree. We should have basic consumer info for this stuff. And I feel like the FBI saying... It's not like Congress is going to do anything. I don't know why even we were thinking that's going to happen. But I do think maybe the industry could get together and, you know, some basics are encryption to the mm-hmm. cloud, to the, within the home. Where mm-hmm. is the data stored? Your TOS is actually going to have information about is it shared with third-party data or right. third-party companies. And, you know, even expecting people to read through all of that to get there is kind of not right. Anyway. That's our call out today. (laughs) Quick bits of news. Particle, which is an IoT development platform that offers Wi-Fi. (laughs) It does cellular connections. It's it's a pretty big, I mean, we've talked to them before. Zach Zapala, the CEO, has been on the show. They've raised $20 million from Spark Capital, and they they are doing really well. I was surprised. So Particle has built these easy to put in development boards for people, and they have about 120,000 people that are building IoT products with Particle. That's pretty significant. And they're in a bunch of products. IDEO uses them, Lunar Design, Mind Tribe. They actually powered that Met Gala IBM Watson dress, the LED dress from the costume drama. Yeah. Yeah. So they were in there. And Google uses them to track their campus bicycles. So pretty cool. A lot of money for them. I am very excited because, my gosh, building IoT connected products is hard. And, you know, kudos to a company that has started up trying to make it easier and has done, learned a lot along the way. Las Vegas has a NBIoT network that is building in conjunction with T-Mobile. So I thought, you know, Kevin, you're a huge Vegas fan. So I thought this was interesting. They're going to use it for smart cities efforts. And they're doing a partnership. Las Vegas is doing a partnership with Qualcomm and Ericsson. As part of this MBIOT network, they're going to connect flood and storm drainage sensors, LED lighting, and some weather temperature stuff. So and environmental. I, I, I don't need a network or a sensor for the weather stuff. Hot, hot and hot. <laughs> it is hot. Sometimes during CES, it's cold and rainy. 
But yes, normally hot. All right. And then final bit of news in the IoT wide area network business, Comcast has launched their Machine Q product, which is a LoRaWAN, which is a LoRa wide area network in 12 more cities. So this is big news. About a year ago, Comcast took a chunk of Senate, which is a company that makes the LoRa chips. And they said they were like, hey, we're going to try this. So basically, they are expanding it to Seattle, Atlanta, a bunch of other cities. And the idea is not to create a citywide LoRa network, but to create these kind of private LoRa networks in like manufacturing spaces or warehouses. And I think this will be kind of a really interesting, I guess, thing to watch. So Kevin, I think we've done a great job this week on the show. And in the coming weeks, we actually want to do a consumer oriented, we answer your questions segment. So I would love for you guys, if you have questions, you guys are really great about sending them, but keep sending them to info at iotpodcast.com. And Kevin and I are going to try to answer some of your questions on the air. Woo! And now, a message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone. We are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Elysian, the makers of Schlage Locks. And I have Rob Martins, who is the futurist over at Schlage, here to talk to us about the smart home. Hi, Rob. Hi, Stacy. Thanks for having me. I am super excited. So... Let's dig into this idea of things in the connected home working with everything else. How do you think about that? Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around how things actually work today versus what's advertised in media. The truth is, is that integrations, the fancy word for the ability to work with other connected stuff, are kind of fickle. You're best off selecting devices that are going to suit a very specific purpose for you first And then looking at what types of recipes, routines, robots, whatever you want to call them, you can connect with later on. Now, you guys so far have decided not to integrate with the unlock function on your locks. Can you explain kind of your thinking there? So, Stacy, Schlage is a security company first. So we're a little different than some other people who are focused on simply the convenience and comforts of the smart home. We're concerned about the security of anyone behind that door, and we want to be certain that your intent is to unlock it. So with voice assistance or next-generation technology, we support things like door status, locking, but unless we can be 100% certain that it's you, we won't unlock the door. Do you think we'll ever get there? I do. I think we will get there. I think there's lots of interesting technology, and as a futurist, it's my job to explore that. So I can say with some certainty, we're starting to see some really interesting technology come forward that is moving us closer and closer to being able to do that with great certainty. Do you want to tell me what those technologies are? So Stacy, there are so many exciting new technologies headed our way. And as a futurist, it's my job to explore all of them, whether it be facial recognition, all different types of biometric cues, both persistent and non-persistent technologies, there is just a wide variety of technology that you're going to see embedded in many different types of security devices that are not only going to make it easier, more convenient and simple, but potentially even more secure than it is today. 
All right, Rob, where can I go to find out more? You can go to schlage.com to learn more. Or if you're interested in our thought leadership or want to learn a little bit more about what I do, you can go to schlage.com slash thought leadership. Or follow me on Twitter on at Schlage Futurist. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Ken Kolderup, who is VP of Marketing for the Bluetooth SIG. Hi, Ken. How are you doing today? I am doing very, very well. And thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. We are super excited because we have been talking about Bluetooth mesh for what feels like oh, decades. It's really probably only been like a year and a half or two years. But you guys just announced the Bluetooth mesh spec this week, and we are so excited. This feels like it was made for the Internet of Things. So talk to us. What is Bluetooth mesh? Yes, you're right. It was made for the Internet of Things. And so what is Bluetooth mesh? Well, specifically, it is we are adding an additional network topology um, for Bluetooth. This one happens to be a mesh networking topology. So now what that means, it allows you know, a many-to-many device communication model. What that means is it's really suited for applications like building automation, wireless sensor networks, asset tracking, things like that, new kind of up-and-coming markets where you have tens or hundreds or, or even thousands of devices that somehow need to securely and reliably connect to one another. So it builds on all the other capabilities Bluetooth has, which is already supports a kind of a point-to-point network topology, supports a broadcast topology. And now with this, we are adding a mesh networking topology for Bluetooth. Okay. And in a little bit, we're going to get into how you guys are doing the mesh. But before that, let's try to focus in on how this relates to the other flavors of Bluetooth. So now we have Bluetooth mesh, we have classic Bluetooth, and then we have Bluetooth low energy. Where does mesh fit in with all of this? Actually, there are only two flavors of Bluetooth, and that stays true with uh, the introduction of mesh networking. So for those of you that are aware, we started Bluetooth 20-odd years ago, and the initial flavor of Bluetooth is something that is called Basic Rate Enhanced Data Rate, or BREDR. And that one's, uh, it was a really good technology and still is today for creating these kind of continuous wireless connections of which you can stream audio over. And that's what's the technology today behind um, the whole wireless audio industry, whether it's headsets or speakers or in-car systems. And it also supports a simple point-to-point network topology for one-to-one device communications. So that's a really, really good market for us. And then back in 2010 timeframe, we launched the second flavor of Bluetooth, which is called low energy or Bluetooth LE. It is a uh, you know, where BREDR was for continuous wireless connections. Bluetooth LE is for more short burst wireless connections. And it's really uh, was done to enable really, really low power consumption and was initially targeted at, at what the time was this nascent connected device market. So Bluetooth LE came along and it also supported that, that same point to point network topology. But now it was really for, for kind of data transfer services rather than streaming services and was, again, targeted that connected device market. Now, the interesting thing about Bluetooth LE is when we launched it, uh, not only did it also support point-to-point, like BREDR, um, it also introduced a, another topology called Broadcast, which was really around one-to-many communications. And what that has evolved into over the last couple of years, what people are really using for that for is this whole kind of beacon market. So there's 
you know, those kind of point of interest beacons, there's item finding beacons. So these technologies you now uh, see out there that use Bluetooth as a way to find your lost keys or your wallet or your phone, or even using beacons as a way to find your way around an airport or a conference center or a stadium. So Bluetooth LE also supported this broadcast topology for one to many. And that leads us to where we are today with mesh, because what mesh is, it's not another flavor of Bluetooth. It's just an additional network topology option available for Bluetooth low energy. So it does build on top of LE. So mesh is all about how you can enable now, as I mentioned before, tens, hundreds, or even thousands of Bluetooth LE devices to be able to exchange messages together in a very secure, reliable, and, and scalable way. All right. So Bluetooth Classic, no mesh. Bluetooth LE, yes mesh. Correct. And it's going to go back how far to what versions of Bluetooth LE? We decided to develop the Bluetooth mesh specifications such that they would work back to any Bluetooth LE that was 4.0 or higher. This is really helpful. And for those of us who are super excited about Bluetooth mesh, and I'm going to include myself in this category, I'm looking (laughs) forward to it because I am excited about being able to control like lights in my smart home, Bluetooth-based light bulbs without having to go up to the floor they're actually on, which is right now not really viable. (laughs) That's just me. But what else are people thinking about using Bluetooth mesh for? A lot of it, coincidentally, is in lighting. But let me go a little bit more into that. So building automation in general is an area where we see a lot of activity that's looking to Bluetooth mesh. And I'll go a little bit more into there. Then there's the wireless sensors, or well, the sensor market in general, especially kind of in industrial use cases, Um, where they're looking to evolve their sensor networks to wireless for economic reasons or being able to add more devices. So really helping out in there. And also in asset tracking, there's some certain areas where uh, this technology really makes a lot of sense. And so those are three big bucket areas where we see a lot of activity. Now, in building automation, I use that term relatively broadly there because there's residential, which is the smart home one, which you kind of brought up, and which will obviously be right in the middle of that as well. But what I'm really excited about is more the commercial area there and building automation, where there are a lot of companies now that are targeting that for whether it's lighting or or heating, cooling or security or so forth. They're really doing a lot of sophisticated automation and control for the building. And in there, we're seeing a lot of energy where the initial thing is on actually on commercial lighting. We're seeing a lot of movement in commercial lighting because the business case is pretty straightforward there for people where there's this whole other changes afoot right now. People going from complex fluorescent in those buildings over to LED. At that time, going over to wireless control makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of kind of governmental and local regulation going in for smart buildings and, and energy efficient buildings and so forth. So there's a lot of things and planets aligning right now for that commercial building automation and lighting specifically getting a lot of traction. So you'll see a lot of activity in there. And let's now talk about a few more clarifying questions. One, and these can be quick answers. For Bluetooth mesh, because it's compatible with Bluetooth low energy, that means it is lower data rates, or rather, I won't be able to do audio or anything over that, right? That's right. These mesh networks, not just just Bluetooth mesh, but a lot of these low power mesh networks aren't really intended at those kinds of use cases where you're streaming massive amounts of data around facilities. I mean, that's where the domain of other, other technologies are. Sure. This one is really in these areas we talked about where it's kind of building automation and sensor networks where you have lots and lots and lots of devices that need to communicate with each other, but it's generally not streaming large amounts of data. It's kind of command and control kind of networks, if you will. 
Will Bluetooth Mesh take advantage of the greater range and bandwidth of Bluetooth 5? The initial set of specifications do not look to leverage some of the, for instance, the broadcast data capacity enhancements that incurred in 5 are not part of the initial Mesh specifications. Okay. But again, for the, all the use cases that we're doing for, for Mesh, those aren't imperative. Sure. The biggest complaint I have heard about Bluetooth as a mesh network up until this moment in time has been that it is a flood-based as opposed to a routing-based network. And basically what that means is it's just shouting its messages to everyone all the time, and that can get that can overload a system, right? As opposed to having intelligent routing, which is a little bit less flexible. You have to plan for it. There's There's constraints on both sides, right? What you guys have done is y'all have created this intelligent flooding network. So explain to me how this is going to work. That's right. So, you know, a couple of years ago when when the group started this effort to create the mesh specifications, that was absolutely a, you know, as you might imagine, the, one of the initial architectural discussions was what's the the message transmission approach that we use? Do you do, you do a routed approach or you do a, a flooded approach? And when they went through the whole exercise of looking at the requirements for scale and reliability and simplicity and everything else, it was determined you really couldn't get there with a routed approach. So I go, I'll go back to the example of commercial lighting where I have to have a, you know, a switch, turn on hundreds of lights all at the same time, massive multicast you know, approach, and you really can't get there with a routed approach. So it was agreed that a flood approach you know, um, wireless mesh networks are very, very unique and fundamentally different than wired networks, right? And so have different requirements and different capabilities. And so it was determined after that that a flood-based approach was was uniquely suited for that environment, the kinds of scale, the kind of reliability. So it's inherently multipath. It's inherently self-healing, inherently no points of failure. Rather than trying to engineer those things in, those are just, just there. Now, as you mentioned, you got to be careful, though, in a flood approach that there, you know, how do you deal with some of the power questions people might have there, a congestion question. So those are those are things we've done into what we call a managed flood uh, approach for message transmission. So for instance, simple time to live counters to make sure that message propagation doesn't uh, go unnecessarily, uh, message caching so you don't get into an unnecessary looping or looping of messages. Um, we have the relay function itself is actually not mandatory. It's actually a function that when you provision a device, you declare whether that device is going to have is going to be relaying messages or not. You wouldn't have a, a non-mains powered node, for instance, relaying messages. That just would be too much energy consumption. So as a developer, I can set my device to be a router, have router functionality versus not, or say it wouldn't have. I wouldn't router say router functionality. Function. It's a relay function, but a yeah. Relay function, so sorry. you would actually. So, for instance, if you're if you're provisioning a a mains powered device, you would probably give that a the relay function. You would be so when it hears a message that it's not for itself, then it will then retransmit that one. Right, but if it's a sensor that's hanging out on a battery, I don't want that waking up dealing with stuff. I want it to just be like. That's right. You don't want a heavy duty cycle that would be associated with having to have that on and listening for those messages. But we do more than that. So, for instance, you mentioned a great one there, like the sensor that's sitting here on a coin cell battery. Even if it's not relaying, you need to make sure that it doesn't have to sit there and have its you know, radio all, on all the time, even listening for messages. So there are other additional functions that can be provisioned into any specific node. So if you are a battery-powered sensor, you'd be given a what's called a low-power node function. Um, and there's also a companion function called a friend function, which you would provision into other mains-powered devices around it. And so when a low power node wakes up with this function in it, first thing it does is looks for a friend around it. Um, they set up a relationship 
And now on any inbound messages that are they're destined for the, the low power node, the friend holds on to it. And then that, that low power node wakes up at, at some frequency, seconds, minutes, even up to four days, and then retrieves its message, uh, messages from the friend. There's techniques, and these other solutions use not, you know, somewhat similar techniques, but it's all around allowing for these battery power nodes to operate for many, many years on just a, a single coin cell. Oh my God, that sounds like very useful and totally applicable towards the problems you're solving, but it also sounds so incredibly complicated. So if I'm a developer, <laughs> is this something that I now have to figure out as part of the spec, or is this something that chip guys are going to do for me? Like, how much of this do I need to know? <laughs> That's right. So when you're when you're developing this, you're going to get along with the Bluetooth, you know, radio. You're going to get the mesh stack, if you will. Whether you know, there's many ways to to source that, whether it's from the silicon provider or independent suppliers, and that's all dealt with in there. And then there's a provisioning tool that is provided to you as well, and that's what's responsible for when you provision a device, making that a very straightforward exercise. How does this handle IPv6? There is work underway to allow IP connectivity within Bluetooth generically. But what we're trying to do with this is this is that's, you know, and that can get for used for many, many use cases. That's not what's getting used, though, for actually enabling a mesh based messaging network. So how do I, you know, transmit uh, very, very short messages for command and control purposes to be in many, many, many devices um, that is not leveraging IPv4 or V6 as part of that? Right. So I won't have a mesh that spans different IP addresses, basically, or different buildings. No. Got it. OK, so. There's been a lot of conversation about different profiles, and I don't think you guys, you call them mesh models, I think, and there's one for lighting that's been developed. Tell me a little bit about what this is, because it feels a little confusing. <laughs> so, well, I mean, if you're used to Bluetooth, you've heard the kind of the profile term before. That's how we talk about um, whether they are GAP profiles or the traditional profiles for BREDRLE. But those are how that was profiles defined how communications happened between to devices using that simple point-to-point -point connection. Now, when you go to mesh, that higher kind of application layer, you know, if you will, so what defines a node on the network and the behavior of that node on the network, that's done with something called models. So those are these mesh models, as you said. And the way that we've approached that is a really a very powerful way where there's a number of kind of generic models that you use to then define what the behavior of a device on the network is. These are very very simple things we're talking about, on, off, you know, up, down, those types of, of generic definitions, what a node does and how it behaves. So those are all defined in these library of, of mesh models that, were, that are being part of the specifications. Okay. So if I have a mesh model for, and you're going to have one for like lighting, what other models exist around? There, there's these generics that are just for, they're used by everything. And then there are some areas that have been, they've gone into more of, there's lighting is a, is a big focus, as we mentioned, sensors, the whole set of definitions around sensors. So that's the other really, really big initial use case we see mesh being used for. So you'll see stuff in asset tracking and other, other areas as well. Okay. So now I hear the phrase mesh models and I think, Zigbee profiles. And if you are, you may not have been a huge student of Zigbee profiles, but you know, there's like Lightlink and home automation, like however many dottos that they had. And it was very confusing because not all of your Zigbee devices would actually work together when you brought them home, unless they were part of the same profile. And so when I'm hearing you talk about these mesh models, I am getting like, a flashback to Zigbee profiles and Zigbee did away with them in Zigbee 3.0, but it still scars me. So I'm, I'm worried that I Bluetooth, which has worked really well is kind of going down that path. The mind trust that has done that is, 
know, they've come up with an approach that is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly flexible, and it addresses the concerns that you have about interoperability, right? So, for instance, just to talk through this with you for a second, the, you know, a lot of this goes on to the provisioner tool, which is actually when you provision a device onto the network, it goes and does a query of all the capabilities of that device and then, and, and then brings that and presents it in a way that makes us all come together. So it takes the, to the actual person who's doing the provisioning, whether that's a consumer or in a commercial context, all that, all that and or the developer of the product, that's all in place that does come together. If I've got a product that is running, running a lighting mesh model, and I've got another product that is running a sensor mesh model, can they talk to each other? And that comes into the role of the provisioner. The, the provisioner is a tool, not a person. So this is the provisioning configuration tool that get, you get supplied with when you buy this mesh, this system, right? Because these are systems, solutions that are being presented to you. It queries a device. It knows what kind of device it is. Okay, it's a light bulb. It's a switch. It's a sensor. It's a thermostat. Those types of things. And then it, and it also knows what capabilities that device has via that query. And then it's responsible then for presenting this in a way that allows you to, obviously, you know, this, th- these things can work together, right? So that's the burden is put on the provisioning tool to make that very, very straightforward and simple to the end user. Okay. So let's talk about how long it's going to take to get to mesh Bluetooth in commercial products. Well, the nice thing here is um, when there's changes in the spec that affect the radio layer, like Bluetooth 5 did, there's a, a, a natural period of time that needs to occur for those products to get developed and tested and hit the market. Now, with Bluetooth Mesh, as we said, this isn't another radio flavor of Bluetooth. This is at a, a kind of a software layer. It's a network. So things can happen more rapidly. So you know, our normal answer here is typically you know, within six months, you'll start to see products in the market. I think here you'll, you'll see stuff happen pretty quickly based on the amount of, of activity that's already been going on here for quite some time. Uh, and the maturity of some of the solutions that are already out there. So I think you'll see things certainly this year um, and hopefully pretty quickly. Awesome. Ken, thank you so much for spending so much time explaining Bluetooth Mesh to me. I'm glad to do it. Thank you for having me on the show. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IoT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyonIoT.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.